Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner Ben Acker and our friend, the TV showrunner Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writers Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Hey, today's episode is a great episode. I know, they always are. I know. You guys have left your reviews on iTunes. I appreciate it. As I say, those do make me feel good. It makes me feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile. That other people are interested in these conversations besides just me. So thanks. And if you haven't left a review, will you? Please? For those reasons? Anyway, today's is a great episode. Um, I really enjoyed talking to both of my guests uh, individually. Uh, Stacy Sher is a tremendous producer and a terrific person. Uh, she has this unbelievable hitting average when it comes to producing films, uh, and we really get into a lot of them here. She has great stories. Uh, she's worked with incredible filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino and Steven Soderbergh, uh, Terry Gilliam, among others. Um, so I think you'll enjoy that conversation as much as I did. But before that, uh, we catch up with our old friend, Tim McKeown, who... Uh, you may remember him from the all-animation panel we did probably sometime in the second year of the podcast. He was working on the show Fish Hooks at the time. Since then, he's done 60 episodes of a live-action kids' show called Odd Squad, which, if you have kids, you should absolutely check out. It's on PBS, um, and there are more episodes coming. And even if you don't have kids, you should at least check out a couple of episodes because they're really fun. Tim uh, and his collaborators did a really great job on this show. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of deadpan humor. It's got a lot of silly humor. Uh, and there's math, which is why we watch TV. Um, but Tim has a new pilot uh, on Amazon. We recorded this uh, right before it came out, so we talk about the date of the pilot a whole lot, September 1st. So it's out right now. It's available for you to watch. It's called Will versus the Future. It's a great premise, uh, which, again, we talk about in the episode. The bar is high these days for television, and these guys are really hitting it. Uh, so check out Will versus the Future on Amazon. And first up, here's the conversation with Tim, then with Stacy. 
possible like Odd Squad was just beginning or you weren't allowed to talk about it I, yet? I think I was not here. allowed to talk about it yet. Yeah. So tell people about that show and people can still find it. And you've got like five seasons, right? Uh, yeah, we have. They've aired 60 episodes. It's crazy. Um, and so it's a PBS show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have 20 more that are being made at the moment. So right. I'm just still doing post on that. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a live action show on PBS and it's about a uh, an organization run by kids that investigates anything strange, weird, and especially odd. Uh, I've heard it called uh, Men in Black for Kids, which I do not <laughs> take insult to. No. That's a very nice thing. Uh, it is, it's that, but it's also, I don't know, there's something so uh, charming and real about it, and maybe that's down to the casting of the kids and the way, especially in those early episodes, that you make them talk. <laughs> Yes, yes. Like they talk like people. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a um, it's a workplace comedy. It really kids. is. And so we never talk about their parents or what happened. Yeah. We have lots of inside jokes, uh, dark inside jokes about what happened to their parents <laughs> in the writers' room, of course. But um, yeah. So the goal. Well, there's two goals. So it's a PBS show, mm-hmm. and they came to me and my co-creator Adam Peltzman, um, asking for a math show. So that was like the goal from the beginning. And I think my goal, I never worked in educational TV before, mm-hmm. and so my personal goal was not to make a lame mess. Yeah, show. when you do these curriculum-based shows, and that's hard to do. Like, yeah. the strictures are so, so regimented. I was really nervous about it, to be honest, because yeah. I'd only worked in um, kids. I worked in kids, but I worked in comedy stuff. Right. Like, um, I did Gravity Falls and yeah. Adventure Time, and it was like... There were no rules. It was just, right. You got to be as weird as you wanted. Yes, exactly <laughs> right. So I don't think I could stop being weird. So when we made the show, we just wanted, and I think we also wanted to do something with kids in charge. Mm-hmm. And because that also seemed to like the spirit of PBS and, hmm. you know, inspire kids. And we wanted to have a diverse cast. So we, we had a lot. Of, apparently we had a big list of things. <laughs> and maybe we just connected all of them and it made this um, and it, I mean, that's the thing, right, is... The success stories, or at least the creative success stories, are the ones where you hear about the creators who were actually trying to do something, right? They were being a little ambitious. They were unafraid, or maybe they were afraid, but they were strange and nonetheless. Yeah. And it feels like that's what you guys got to do on this show. Yeah, well, I think it's also like my background uh, and... It kind of when you put me in this box, I'll come up with something, something weird. Mm-hmm. So it was, but I think like one compliment I've heard is that kids don't even realize they're learning. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of quickly became our theory, which was uh, teach through deceit. Like just, <laughs> just make something so hopefully so action packed and entertaining and the characters are good. And, um, and there's just jokes, jokes, jokes that you don't realize that underneath it is this like through line of, mm-hmm. of math. And I think that the other thing I learned quickly on that was not to try to like, jam in the curriculum or mm-hmm. just kind of do like a light like dressing of it yeah it's better when you have it um just like baked in sure absolutely so, yeah like i remember we had to do um so it's math shows and we had to do more than just numbers you had to do um like time was one of these things mm-hmm. and so um i was like i don't so the it's funny you do have this like army of curriculum people yeah and you respect them because you do actually want to teach the stuff. Like, right. you don't want to just kind of do it half fast. Which, for people who want more in-depth on this, we did an episode with the Sesame Street writing staff maybe two or three years ago, and they should go find that episode to really hear about how creative works with curriculum. But Yeah, and, you, and there's, yeah, and I think you have to respect them, and that's part of, that's mm-hmm. the deal, right? That's It's kind of this vehicle, but it's also an entertainment vehicle. And you're different from yeah. a teacher teaching, right? Like in the classroom. So anyway, so I'm just like, we have to do this time episode and the curriculum um, person, this wonderful woman, Emily Helfgott was like, you have to have the kids look at their watch a lot. 
I was like, that is like the kill. It's going to kill like our stories. And so we basically came up with this idea of like, all right, well, what if time travel? Because if you've seen Will vs. the Future, I'm obsessed with time travel. So what I just need a reason why these kids keep looking at their watch. And time travel seems to be a great reason. Sure. So we wrote this episode called 601 to 6, 6 o'clock to 605. Uh-huh. And basically the same five minutes like keeps repeating. Sure. You get a Groundhog Day scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then to make it action-packed. But we, but you know there's this like long – and then this is the subconscious writer in me. I know there's this like long history of Groundhog Day episodes. <laughs> well aware. <laughs> so how do we do like our spin on it? Absolutely. And so we have to do something like crazy and odd. And I loved the idea that – um, at the end of every five minutes, something crazy would happen. Mm-hmm. And so we had established in our show that there's a dinosaur room. So <laughs> every time 605 hits, dinosaurs break out the dinosaur room. And Great. it just was like a really fun sure. way. And and we went out of our way to like make it so it really, like the solution was reading a clock correctly, mm-hmm. right? It was about a kid who mixed up um, 605 and 130 because like the shorthand nice. little hand. So it's like, <laughs> it's funny. like baked in. And, and uh, but it's also like for me as a writer, it's like I'm telling an action packed story where dinosaurs are going to show up in five minutes. <laughs> right. You know, and it's also like, and you have these people, I think the style of the show too is it's sort of a little dragnet-y mm-hmm. where these kids are in suits and they have gadgets and the kids are so funny. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> no, they're great. We really lucked out with the kids. Yeah. But they have this sort of like gallows humor about yeah. the, they're stuck in this world the way you do in any Groundhog Day story, I guess. Right. But. Um, but I think, and that was one of the really smart things about the show. Like it was in many ways, there's a dragnet aspect, there's a law and order aspect. Yeah. Uh, there, but there's an X-Files aspect, yeah. right? And the math is sort of always the solve. Yeah, it's like thing. we had this solution, um, we came up with this saying, uh, odd is the problem and math is the solution. Yeah. So, and, and that's that, your guiding. That te- Yeah, that tells you your structure, that tells, it must have made things easier for the writers. Yeah, 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 it was. I mean, in our writer's room, we had basically like a wall of like math, and then we had <laughs> a wall of like odd, crazy, awesome. like time travels, unicorns, dinosaurs, and that's really fun. Yeah. So they've, they've aired 60 episodes? Yeah, about 60. And we had a movie, which was really fun. Jack McRae oh, was right. in it. He was awesome. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, we have, like, 20 more to go. And then there might be more where... Um, oh, great. There's, it's the weird government funding. So, oh, that's right. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. There but, might be no more PBS at all, for <laughs> all we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, but, yeah, because you gave me an intro, I'll, maybe I'll speak to that really quickly, about, like, just... It's funny, working on a PBS show, um, so many people have come to me about like well what's the point of pbs and so forth and because it's it, people have said like well other sh- other networks will just like fill the gap hmm. and i think other networks are doing great educational thing i think mm-hmm. the thing that surprised me as a creator on this show and dealing with pbs is this uh this is gonna sound dramatic but this sense of duty mm-hmm. so you have this you're government funded so there's people that are forced to pay for this right and and there's people that are it's on the public airwaves so they don't have to pay for it it's free and it's like you have it's this citizenry thing that uh, kicks yeah. in almost does that make sense it absolutely yeah. makes sense i wish more people working for the government felt that way <laughs> yeah well it's just the other i mean again like i think uh, for me i would try as hard on any show i was on but what is the consequence of working for a private network like mm-hmm. the consequence is you're going to let down your boss or you're going right. to or the show's not going to perform well but the consequence on a show for pbs is like you're spending these people's money poorly Sure. You know? Absolutely. Your neighbor's money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you also have an opportunity to like reach people who don't have as mm-hmm. many avenues. So, yeah. And I think that that goes, it's all, it's, it is the educational part's important, but then also the entertainment part's important. Yeah. Like give these 
people who don't have many resources good stuff. Yes, you know? absolutely. And I think, so. you know, we can get into uh, Will versus the Future um, because this was something yes. that you and I talked about um, when you came back to America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did disappear uh, to work on Odd Squad for 80 episodes for four years. And yes. Now I'm coming out of my odd tunnel. Um, but why don't, let, let's give the sort of background on Will. But then I specifically want to talk about the stuff that you and Kevin, like, the, again, that list of things that you guys had where you wanted a diverse cast and you wanted yes. to have, you know, a certain socio economic uh, lifestyle shown on the show. Yes, yes, um, But yes. let's let's talk about the backstory of the show, first of all. Yeah, so I, yeah, I co-wrote this with my friend Kevin Sesha. He's very funny. Uh, he's one of the funniest people I know. He's a stand-up. And, um, so and yeah, you guys worked together on a few shows. Right? Uh, yeah, so we met each other at Cartoon Network, yeah. and then we... Um, we just kind of kept whenever we had gaps. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I don't know. It's it's funny. It's like I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, Ben, and <laughs> and I and I it's partnerships are like a tricky thing, you know. Yeah. And I think one thing I love about Kevin is it's the partnership is always easy. Mm-hmm. I think it's partly that we are able to support ourselves as writers on our own. Sure. <laughs> so there's kind of like, there's less pressure. Right. When you come together, it's just fun. It's just fun, exactly. So there's kind of like, we have gaps and we work together and then we go off and do our own stuff. So this was this thing we wrote together eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And we, um, it's just an idea the two of us had. Uh, can I pitch the idea? Yes, okay. please do. Because the concept I've been telling, since you told me, oh, I've you. been telling people both with, again, with kids and without kids. And just the basic premise is enough to, even if I didn't know you, I would have tuned in. Oh, thank you. And it's you. enough That's to nice make to other people tune in. Yeah, so, so well, one description I've heard is it's like Terminator, but for kids, which <laughs> I don't know if that would make parents actually watch that, that show. <laughs> but it'll make adults watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's about this kid, um, uh, Will, and this girl from the future, this warrior girl named Athena, comes back and visits him, and uh, he's like, oh, my God, I know why you're here. The future's destroyed. And she's like, the future's destroyed. And you're part of the Rebel Force. She's like, I'm part of the Rebel Forces. And he's like, I've watched like tons of sci-fi movies. You, the only reason people come back in time is to find the Rebel leader who like grows up to save the world. So that's what I am. And she goes, No, actually, you grew up to destroy the world. <laughs> and he's like, What? And uh, and then yeah, so that's kind of the premise. And then through um, through clever writing, <laughs> uh, he convinces her to um, let him try and change the future. Right. What did, I think, and am I wrong that it eventually comes to like he could go either way? There's hope yeah. for him yet. Exactly. And so the story yeah. becomes that. Yeah. So it's a comedy, and it's a and it's an action show, and mm-hmm. the Rebel Warrior comes back as this like kickass. Uh, She's so girl. good. Oh, but so also, good. and we'll, we can talk about casting in a minute. Um, but you populate the world like. Uh, Will's best friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Haley. Haley. Yeah. Is so funny. Oh, great. Thank this, you. This actress who must be 11 years old yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. is so funny. And then Tom Wilson is in it from Back to the Future. Yeah. So that's so great. I know. So that I'm, I'm a little self, self-conscious about that because I feel like it was like a stunt cast. And it is. We are like winking to Back to the Future. But more to Freaks and Geeks. And, oh, exactly. I'm <laughs> such a fan of his from Freaks and Geeks. So. Which he feels like he's. it's an extension of that character of the coach from Freaks yes, and Geeks. Yes. Oh, oh, that's great. He's the yeah, principal yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but, but yes, he, there's a little Back to the Future. Yeah. He was funny on the set because he would, <laughs> he was really like in between takes, he'd come out to be 
be like, do you know how many 12 year olds are asking me about Back to the Future right now? <laughs> <laughs> so, but he was very generous and super funny. Yes, and uh, a sweet guy and is yeah. really good on the show. Oh, I mean, great. Yeah. Really, uh, the, the woman who plays Will's mother yeah, is yeah, terrific. Yeah. Yeah, like, I hope she, we uh, see more of her. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so it's really well cast. Uh, so you guys wrote this or a version of this eight years ago. We wrote it eight years ago. We sold it to Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, we were one of many pilots and we had a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. We got great notes. And then at the end, they're just like, we're not going to do it. <coughs> and we're like, okay, well, that it was a wonderful experience besides that part. That was my experience at Nickelodeon. Was it? Yeah, yeah, It was yeah. like, this whole process has been terrific, except that you didn't pick up the show. I can't really complain. Yeah. However, I have to say... <laughs> I'm now, I mean, at the time, I was like, well, I love money, and that, that is not helping my love of money at all. <laughs> but um, but now I'm thrilled they didn't, because this is such a better fit yeah. for Amazon. So it goes away. Like, you, this is what happens. Yeah. You develop a thing, and then it doesn't get picked up. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's, there weren't a lot of options, especially eight years ago, for other places this could no. go. No, and especially, I think, at Nickelodeon, it's all just broad, a lot of, like, four-camera mm-hmm. stuff. There's no place for it. Right. right. Yeah. Um, even so, when I did Odd Squad on PBS, that was like four years ago. Because so Odd Squad single camera, mm-hmm. and that was rare back then. Still, yeah, that's true. You know, that's it was like that's the I, that's where I had to go <laughs> to do this stuff. You were there. driven to public broadcast. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so how does it come back up again? So I feel like this is. Uh, I feel like in our industry, there's so many like bashing of executives, and uh-huh. I am gonna go out and blame them. Our executive is awesome. Yeah. So this woman, Christina Reynolds, uh, I knew when she was at Cartoon Network, mm-hmm. and we'd pitch it to her at Cartoon Network before we sold it to Nick, mm-hmm. and she always remembered it. And I just met her, like I just we are we knew each other, and we would just see right. each other in between stuff. And it's she not. Knew, it's a small town. It is a small town. Honestly, yeah, exactly. I mean, after all, is like. And it's, I think it's a good lesson for writers going out and pitching and having a meeting or working with people. Like, don't be a jerk. Yeah, oh, for you're sure. You're going to run into people again. And at best, you're going to become friends with them, as, as you and Christina were. Yeah. But, at, you know, at the very least, try to be pleasant yeah, because yeah. you encounter people again. Well, I think it also helped that she knew Odd Squad and she, mm-hmm. she told me that she likes Odd Squad. So <laughs> I've been doing... Ho- hopefully good things since yeah. then. And um, so, yeah, she just said, we have Amazon is what we're doing. These are the, and she remembered the project. She's like, can we bring it here? And I'm right. just like, well, this is fantastic. So she had moved over to Amazon. She is, was now in, uh, is it just children's? It's Amazon Kids. Yeah. Amazon Kids. Yeah. So they did Gordon Moore Gibbons, mm-hmm. and they did uh, Just Add Magic they're doing now. Right. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're, like, they're a studio. Like, they're, I mean, they're a network. They're looking at stuff. They're taking pitches. And they're yeah. taking a lot of them, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, but, so she totally rose it from the dead. Yeah. Like, it was, and and it, I have to say, I think there's a lot of, pro- I think I'm pretty good at letting go of things. <laughs> like, I did this one pilot, um, and we made, we produced the pilot and didn't go. And I'm just like, that was probably the right decision. <laughs> Uh, as much as we all tried, but it's you know there's some there's so many things you sure. can't control. And but this was always I feel like the one that got away. Yeah. We, Kevin and I have another very dark pilot that also is the one that never for kids. Away. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, I'll um, good. I'll pitch. We'll it do that next time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's like the two things that Kevin and I had going. Um, so. so when she said, you know, bring it over to us, yeah. was there a rewrite? Like, what happened? Did you have yeah, to go we did redevelop? A did you repitch? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. How, what? Well, I think we got, we were better writers eight years later. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and, uh, and I think that we, and I think TV's changed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing I'm so excited about the show is, um, and that this is, it's been an adult TV, but now it's in kids TV, is how serialized you can make stuff, yeah. right? And then also I think the kind of comedy you can do for kids, like. Yes. Right. I mean, we were trying to do 
super funny. Please, we're just trying so hard <laughs> to make it funny. Like, that's the goal, is to make this funny thing. But it also, um, so that's like the umbrella at which we live. And then, but it's also we wanted something that was grounded, mm-hmm. right? And something you care about these characters. Because it's just, I feel like there's also so much wacky kid stuff. Yeah. And we don't need to fill up that. Absolutely. Anymore. The show is really funny. Oh, thank you. And yeah. it's funny in a way that is, like, I loved Gravity Falls. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I love And I know that. a lot of yeah. adults love that show, but it's it's funny in a way that's even different to that. Yeah. Like, that, for to me, is the standard for a quality kid show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, a great show to work on. And, and uh, Will versus the Future feels like a show not just from it's better than a show from my childhood but it feels like a show <laughs> that that I would watch yeah. you know well that and it totally. just happens to have kids in it yes kids yes. happen to be the stars of it yes um so so tell me a little bit about the redevelopment of the show what what needed refiguring what what wasn't broken that you were able to bring over right well we added a lot more ambivalence i think um, i think in the pilot there's a question of who's telling the truth and who's not telling hmm. the truth. And that was not really in the first draft. Oh, I'm so excited about that now. Um, There's a great cliffhanger oh, good. in the yeah. pilot yeah. Um, that I, if people are not demanding answers after that, you have to do it as a comic book series. Okay, something. good, good, good. Yeah, I know. I feel like a little bit of a cheat because it's like up against these other pilots and we're hoping. Sure. So I, but I, we cheated by putting a big cliffhanger. <laughs> you <laughs> have to pick cheat. this up for more. But it's also a serialized show. Yeah. So well, that's the opportunity you're in now, exactly. right? I mean, I do that with adult stuff. Like yeah. you just want to, and I think that's what we do if we go to series, like you have to watch the next episode. Absolutely. Right. And that also just creates better writing too, yeah. right? I mean, you're not just doing act outs and act breaks in this show. You're doing these big moments that you're keep building to. Yeah. Did the characters change? Uh, yeah. Well, one thing we did was we um, we changed the character of Haley from a boy to a girl. Oh, really? Which was like the I kind of uh, I'm going to get back in my soapbox a little bit. But Do it. after being at PBS, like just gender equality in TV shows, um, I I wish I could go back <laughs> into everything I've ever done. Yeah. And, you know, it's like I mean, I, I love what the Gina Davis Institute mm-hmm. is doing in their work and I've read stuff about, like, just take a look at your script and make sure that it's at least 50-50 and see if there's characters you can turn from boy to a girl. I think especially as a male writer. Yeah, right? absolutely. And it's I a think, good thing to think about. I think it made that character way better, way mm. more interesting. Um, and, yeah, so that was one thing that changed. Um, I think we just added a lot more action, mm-hmm. too. Interesting. Yeah. Was it knowing that... A budget would be different? Was it just the way stories are told now? Again, I think it was a little bit of, like, wish fulfillment for kids. Mm-hmm. And then coming off of Odd Squad, which we tried to jam as much action as possible. Mm-hmm. And then also, I actually think part of it was making the Athena character just as badass as possible. So. The, her, the introduction of her character is so good. Oh, good. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Like, it's great action to start, but it's also... There's a really funny beat that goes along with it, and it's really well executed. Yeah. Well, that yeah, we pay, we definitely spent a lot of time on that first scene because you, I think, ideally in a pilot, you want to hit every like tone you're trying mm-hmm. to accomplish with the show, right? Yeah. So you're like action, and then comedy, and I think like uh, I think the Buffy pilot was like I don't know if you remember, but the Buffy pilot's oh, yeah. like amazing, right? It's Absolutely. like it's this 
Of it damn. tells you all the things that the show can and will be. Yeah, and damn. it's and it also like preys on your um, mm-hmm. what you expect will happen. Yeah, right. So we have the we do have this big robot fight, but then quickly get to like undercut it with like a joke. Yeah, you know. So. Um, were these tonal issues something that you and Kevin talked much about? Was it something you and Amazon talked much about? It was really. I think it was really Kevin and me. Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon was just super supportive and That's awesome great. the whole time. I, I think we'd also been living with it for so long, sure. for eight years. So when you come back and you're just like, what can we accomplish with this? Mm-hmm. You know? And did you have to pitch out what a season would be? Yeah. Okay. So we have the big, um, I I don't know the Duffer Brothers, but I've heard tell of like their 40-page right. like Stranger Things document. And we had the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we would have had it anyway just because we're geeking out. And I think with a show like this, you have to know where you're going. Yeah. So we definitely have like a big beginning, middle, and end. And we had, um, I had this nickname on set. Uh, Kevin would call me the Easter Bunny because I would love putting Easter eggs like <laughs> in, in the show. <laughs> What can people find in the pilot, or do you not want to ruin it? Um, no, people can find stuff. I guess I, um, I'll say that there's this, if you really want to watch the show, there's this thing in... Which you do. Yes, okay. There's this thing in Will's um, living room that um, there's a, it ties back to the first scene. All right. So there's there's a, a prop, maybe you cool. can look at. All right. Um, but that's like one of many things. And then also we just had like... Like just sci-fi, like geek references. Like we were in a teachers' lounge, and so all the all the names of the teachers' lounge are like Sam Beckett and Fun McFly. And just that's just like for my. That's own. cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's nerdiness. actually on camera. It might be. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's yeah. there for you. It's yeah, yeah, building yeah. the world for you. Yes, exactly. Um, um, did you guys have this sort of deep document done in the first iteration of it? Not we. I think like bare bones of it. Okay. I mean, I think if we'd gone to series, sure. Then. We would have immediately done it, right? Yeah, um, but for this, you it had to be part of the pitch too, right? Yeah, I think we just had to convince Amazon that we knew where we were going, mm-hmm. you know. And then, and then of course, we we had this like huge document. And they're like, "You should calm down. We we okay. We know where you're going. We don't need to hear every little iteration." Yes, you do. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, and then, so once once you know you're making the pilot. Mm. Um, what was involved? What is Amazon's role? You know, we haven't talked to a lot of people about working with them as a network. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, my experience was really good and I think it helped that I kind of had a little bit of a cheat cause I had this relationship with mm-hmm. Christina. Um, I mean, they just, and also, so we have a director right. who also, I just, I think, I think I just got lucky. We had, there's a line producer who'd worked, who I'd worked with before who happened to be at Amazon. So we teamed up with her. That's not luck. That's not luck. Right. I guess it's just, <laughs> it is your, to your point about like, just, getting to know people. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. This line producer and I had actually had, we were on kind of a bad show together. It was not a good experience for either of us, but working with her was awesome. Oh, funny. And That's I, great. Yeah, right? I do think back to like that experience, which was like not creatively fulfilling, but it was kind of worth it. Sure. To find this connection. Absolutely. And she was such an advocate of us and like really stretched our money and was also oh, just great. delightful to work with. Um, and then my buddy Joe Newsbaum, he had directed tons of stuff for Amazon. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of already in the family. Oh, great. And we, but we still had to fight for him. I think Joe still had to fight. It's funny, you have a back and forth where it's just like you're in the family. And then sometimes that's a bad thing because they're like, well, we want to expand our base. And you're like, you have someone in you. Your, <laughs> uncle, your uncle's amazing. Right. This guy I want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the casting? process like uh well we said up front that we wanted to do diverse casting Mm -hmm. and because i think that that's something that should be on tv more did you 
So it was longer, to answer your question. Did you write uh, specifically into the script? We didn't. No, we didn't write specifically. Interesting. But I think the goal would be now that... See, and I'll defend that for a moment. Yeah. Which is the pool of kid actors is so small. Yeah. So I think we wanted to be open to that. You know, Mm -hmm. I would have loved to... um, So my son is... um, is adoptee is Korean and Kevin is uh, half Korean. So I guess we would have picked Korean. <laughs> just to blah, blah, blah. The just to forward fact. that. I know exactly. <laughs> um, but I think the hard thing is like that target gets super small. Sure. Right. And um, so for kid actors, you have to kind of keep it wider. But mm-hmm. I think the goal would be if we go to series, now looking at those kids and uh, writing to that. Yeah. You know, like. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but the casting process was a lot longer. Because you had to, you just had to build in, you know, um, more time to find this wide range. But I don't know. I, I became a fan on Odd Squad. I mean, the f- reception from parents and kids, it's like kids seeing themselves reflected back on it. On, uh, Absolutely. You know? Yeah. No, it, it matters. And yeah. I think we're finally getting to hear that, but it's, it's always matters. Yeah. But finally that, that is out there. But it all, the I mean, at the that. end of the day, what matters is... You have to find this perfect marriage of like awesome actors right. too, right? And and that's where you have to build yourself the time to find these people. Right. So how what was the search like for these kids? Because they're all so good. Oh, good. They're Thank really, you. Yeah. Like they can deliver the jokes, which is, I imagine is the hardest part. Yeah. Well, we just I don't. It's just I mean, there's no magic yeah. process to it. You just look and look and look and. It's look. a numbers game. Yeah, and you just <laughs> keep your ears open for anyone who's worked with anyone great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these kids, like, how much experience do they have? Not much. That's what I thought. Yeah. I hadn't seen them before. That's been my experience on Odd Squad. Like most of those people yeah. were brand new kids. I mean, they're kids, right? Right. So I think that's also what's special about kids TV as opposed to adult stuff. It's like, wait, on not to keep bringing up Odd Squad, uh, but there'd be times where like a kid would have to enter a scene and uh, we'd yell cut and they go back to ones and they go and they leave. And on the way out, they'd like jump up and like tap the ceiling. It would be like, do that in a scene. Like, yeah. do that. Like, <laughs> it's all those like little gifts you get. Yeah, that, absolutely. You know, instead of trying to jam them in these little adult boxes. But Absolutely. Yeah. Um, was there any call from Amazon to have like a name in it, to have something hooky in it? No. That's great. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like the concept is hook enough. Yeah. Like, once you get that concept, if you, I don't know if there's trailers or stuff online. Are there trailers? Uh, there's, like, a, there's a trailer that talks about all the pilots in contention. Okay. So if you just, when you see our show, watch and then close your eyes. And don't just watch. turn it off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, like, that, that seems like that would be hook enough to yeah. get people in yeah. so you don't have to put a name in there. Sure, so. but I think our goal if we go to series is to get as many, uh, like, adult guests like sure. comic guest stars too. You when know. it feel again, it feels like the kind of show that an adult with you know a ten year old kid, an eight year old kid could watch with their kid. Yeah. And if that adult happens to be Patton Oswalt, oh. you should absolutely go be on the show. <laughs> I know exactly. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing too. So I have a uh, I have a nine year old, and it's it's tricky. You know, we've been watching like more movies. It is a hard genre. There's not that much mm. out there, especially live action, right? Because mm-hmm. even like these awesome movies, like Back to the Future, for example, there's always something super weird. <laughs> <laughs> there's always this when you're just like, oh yeah, this memory. You're like, oh, it's time travel. It's awesome. And there's like a weird like date rape scene. Yeah, like that is so consistent. Like on so many, it's like 
or there's just like this gratuitous like guns and stuff and I know they're always every time we watch something awesome there always seems to be like a follow up conversation <laughs> oh, we need to no. have and he still so like you, loves it are you promising with Will vs. the Future no follow up conversations no follow up <laughs> conversations exactly that's great yeah. no but I feel like there's such a opportunity there's such a even if this doesn't go I hope to do myself and I hope other people mm-hmm. do like create just awesome live action stuff for kids that isn't lame for parents <laughs> absolutely and i think that's a it's a glut it's not <laughs> out there no no there there's a, there's a dearth of that kind of stuff and yeah. like was there a ever, dearth, dearth that's an yeah was there ever a lot of that stuff i don't know that there was yeah i don't know i'm as a parent i'm dying for it right i'm sure yeah um what is the age range that you guys see on this show so i mean i think it's uh six to eleven that's sort okay. of the age but again i like we tried to put in hard jokes for and, for parents. And you did. I mean, it yeah. really works. And again, yeah. like, not our, Not only are they just, it's a good script, clearly, but they're delivered well, they're directed well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a good show. Oh, People should you. watch it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate um, it. And the way this works is, it's a little bit of a bake-off. Right? <laughs> it is. This is how Amazon does it. Yeah, I prefer my failures to be private. But, um, so <laughs> this one's for everyone. I know, yeah. So yeah, there's a competition. Between two other pilots, I haven't seen them. Right, and they're, so they're all premiering September first. Yeah, uh, and, on Amazon. Yeah, and then um, depending on the audience uh, response and reviews and so forth, um, that plays in heavily. I've heard for whether they'll pick them up or not. Okay, yeah. uh, so people should check it out. People should review it. Uh, leave an Amazon review. Yes, yes, thank uh, you. Do that. Um, I will actually recommend. It seems to me that if you are a fan. If there are any of you out there who are fans of the Thrilling Adventure Hour and have found this podcast through that podcast, you will like this show. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, like, it, I think it hits that thing of being for adults and kids at the same time. You know, there are no... It talks about actual things. Yeah. Um, or at least you see you see the potential for that, but in a fun way. Um, again, the kids are charming. The script is charming and well written. Yeah, um, well, I like what you. I'll, I'll repeat what you said, which is like it's a show that just happens to have kids in it. Yeah, you know, it it does feel that way. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel like a lot of the the kids shows that people are used to seeing. Yeah, like don't don't bring your baggage to the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if you love thrilling, if you love uh, you know like Star Wars and things that are real all ages entertainment, that's who I would recommend it to. And let us know on Twitter if you are watching it. You're on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter, yes. What's your I'm what's your uh, Tim McPhone. Yes, let us know on Twitter if you are watching this, uh, because we, you want to hear from the people, especially people with kids or actual kids. Oh, my God. That's like, the best. I mean, it would that's be like, great to get feedback. That's amazing. And yeah. actually, I think it's, I would say one thing, you actually have an effect on the series, because normally sure. when a show premieres and you comment on it, they've made a million episodes right. already, and you can't do stuff. But we've only made one. And if you respond, then we it actually affects us <laughs> going into the writer's room. It's That's the really rare funny. moment where you have an effect on the show. You That's know? really funny. Uh, great. So, guys, check it out. It's on Amazon September 1st. You only need to watch this one pilot. That's it. Yeah. Free. You don't need to be prime. You don't need to. What is it, like 24 minutes, 22 Uh, minutes? Yeah. Well, it's the wonderful Amazon thing where you don't have a set running time. This thing is 23, 40 minutes. It's great. Yeah. So, guys, that's like after lunch. (laughs) Yes. Hang out. Yeah, yeah. I've run out of things to say. Tim, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Ben. Appreciate (laughs) it. Thanks very much.
This is it. We're doing it. Great. Stacey Scherer, thank you for being here. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've been bothering you for months now to get you on the show because you've had a hand in, like, everything good. <laughs> and I want to know, and I've said this before we started rolling, but, like, what does that mean? <laughs> what is your job? <laughs> well, um, I, th- I think, you know, one of the biggest jokes is what actually does a producer do. And, in fact, when I made Get Shorty, it was a big <laughs> recurring runner, and and I don't mean the TV series Get Shorty because yep. Scott Frank and Danny and Michael and I have nothing to do with the TV series of mm-hmm. Get Shorty, nor did they ever ask us about being involved with the TV really? series of Get Shorty. Yes, but this was the movie from. But this is the movie what, with John. Nineteen ninety six, I think. Um, I could be wrong. Ish, um, ish for sure. Um, with John Travolta and Gene Hackman um, and Delroy Lindo, and. Um, Bette Midler and Danny, of course. And we, you know, one of the reoccurring jokes was, what does a producer do? And anybody thinks they can be a producer, even, um, even a, you know, a collections man from the mob. And what really became, um, you know, so, so that became a joke. And then as I saw through the trajectory of my career, that the more there was entertainment television um, and, you know, Access Hollywood, like all of these things that are really common now, and and the hyper focus on media and film and television and all things entertainment, that really wasn't the way it was when I started my career in the late eighties, and I remember it changing specifically around the time of Get Shorty, hmm. when I went to a family wedding in like West Palm Beach, Florida, and somebody asked me if I thought the movie would have legs. Which was That's not an ex- expression, you know. I grew up yeah. not related to anybody in the film business, not knowing anybody in the film business, not really even knowing that there was a job called producer. So, to get back to answering your question, I think it changes on every movie. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's your idea, sometimes it's the filmmaker that you find and or writer that you're supporting. Sometimes you find the article. Sometimes it's a filmmaker who comes to you that you've worked with for a long time, and all different. You know variations. Um, so let's let's get into and some of, of course the, getting the financing and supervising the the marketing right, and all which those I think things. It's probably the stuff that people most identify Assume, with yes. producing. Um, but yeah, there's so much more to it, and in many ways, you know, a producer is as much the author of the film as the writer, the director, and and any of the creative other creative talent. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to say that's true. Um, but let's uh, let's get into some of the biography. But I think we'll we'll sort of go where the conversation takes us because um, there are certain things I do want to hit. Um, you're currently with Activision. Activision Blizzard Studios. We started a linear content division um, to to develop uh, film and TV based on our IP. Right. But in your, the past, I mean, 20, 25 years, you've been with a number of different production companies, although well, for the most actually, part, one or no. two, right? I, I've, I, the funny thing about my career is that I've essentially had, until now, which makes it the third, um, in, in now going into the third decade, I've had three jobs in my entire <laughs> career. So um, if you don't count, you know, making music videos while I was in graduate school. so I definitely count that. Okay, well, then we can talk about Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it. What? Um, yes, that was my very first job. Anyway, uh, 
Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I I worked for two producers right out of grad school, Deborah Hill and Linda Obst, and made some movies with them. And about six years into that, I met Danny DeVito and Michael Schamberg. And by the time we had made Pulp Fiction, which I had found, um, or had found Quentin, mm-hmm. uh, and, and gotten him to do a second film with us, I became their partner. And then we were together for 12 years. And then Michael and I worked together for another 10 years. And then, um, yeah, and, and in a company called Double Feature mm-hmm. Films. We still had some movies that the three of us had together that came out and sure. or shows. And then, um, you know, for a brief period, I was producing on my own. And mm-hmm. I know that you talked to, to Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some other TV with Michael. I, I still produce Into the Badlands that's on AMC and just started shooting its third season. And then I went to Activision about a year and a half ago. Oh, interesting. I didn't. Uh, I think I had assumed some more of it was independent, but I guess it was just that. that it was a short timeline. period of time between right after Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess really around you know before the Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, so let me ask you. I mean, like looking at this list of things you movies you've worked on, TV shows you've worked on. We mentioned Sweet Vicious and Into the Badlands. That's recent. So many of these Tarantino movies, so many of these Soderbergh movies, like from Contagion to Brockovich to Out of Sight, um, and then this other list of like Get Shorty, Man on the Moon, all the way back to Fisher King and Reality Bites. I'm curious to hear what what are you bringing to the table? What do you think, in sort of an overview kind of way, and we can get into specifics on some of these later. I, I mean. I'm a film geek, you know. Um, I was also a comic book geek, so it's great to be here oh, in Meltdown. Fantastic. So um, I completely, I have every Stranko cover of Nick Fury. Um, no way. Yes, I do. <laughs> and um, uh, in fact, when I first started working for Deborah and Linda, Linda had done a book about the 60s, and she knew what a big comic book geek um, I was. And she introduced me to Stan Lee. We actually developed a script for Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., during the time period when nobody cared about making comic book movies and they completely just put it into turnaround and Shane Black was a producer on it with us and um, a friend of his, Greg Press, wrote the script and nobody was interested, but I didn't take it personally because nobody would make James Cameron Spider-Man at that time. So, (laughs) Um, And it's sort of, I feel like I've always had this thing in my career of being a little bit ahead of Mm. my time because the, you know, the very first film that I ever worked on that got me my first job was um, a movie called Adventures in Babysitting, mm-hmm. which was my first um, associate producer credit. Or actually, no, it was I just got a special thanks on that <laughs> really? movie. What was your involvement my first, with that? How did you get um, I found the script. It's what got me my job. So this mm-hmm. is sort of the yeah. – while I was in graduate school at the Stark program at USC mm-hmm. in the early years of the Stark program, I had already been working for a video director – named Marty Colner, who also had done all of these, like, did all the original comedy specials. So the first thing I worked on was something called A Toast to Lenny Bruce. Wow. Um, and there was, like, every Jewish Jackie, like Jackie <laughs> Vernon, Jackie Mason, Jackie Gale, sure. like, doing a roast of Lenny Bruce in The Troubadour. But we did these really interesting interviews with Honey Bruce and hmm. Kitty Bruce and Lotus Weinstock and all the people in Lenny Bruce's lives. It was it was really, and Sally Mars before she died. I mean, many of these people oh, have neat. now passed away, but it was really fascinating. And we started making music videos because it was the height of MTV, you know, the late 80s, mid to late 80s. And 
I had moved out here. Weirdly, I met the director at a family, like we had a family friend who, it was their engagement party. And he was just hanging out in his cutting room that was in his house. And I started talking to him and he hired me as an assistant. And I think I was Hmm. 20 years old and and going into my second year of grad school. And that is, let me just interrupt for a sec, that like, we should say that is so often the way, right? Like you don't plan these things. There is no one way to break into this industry. It is so often happenstance. Yeah, it's the first, look, I really believe that Hollywood's a meritocracy. And I feel like I was really blessed to grow up at a time where the auteur filmmakers were making mainstream commercial films, you know. So I grew up with Hal Ashby and Sidney Pollack and Mike Nichols and and Stanley Kubrick and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. And and my dad loved old films, so we used to we used to just, you know, watch black and white movies together all the time. So that was sort of me getting my Hawks and, um, you know, Preston Sturges and, Mm. you know, all of that sort of backdrop. And and he loved all the Edward G. Robinson movies and, you know, and um, so I kind of grew up loving all things film. And I think any person who grew up in this, like really grew up in the 70s was a TV show geek and a pop culture yeah. geek because it was very focused, you know. Everybody liked the Partridge family. <laughs> Everybody liked the Brady Bunch, you know. Everybody, it was a very specific look at things, yeah. you know. And so I didn't even know there was a job called producing. Sure. Um, I thought I was going to go into sports broadcasting, and I had an internship <laughs> in college, um, and uh and I realized that it was, I always joke, I realized that going being a woman going into sports in the late 80s was too sexist, but I chose the really feminist um, world of Hollywood to focus on <laughs> instead. So I, I had this professor at, that was a film professor at, at um, the University of Maryland where I graduated from who said there's this amazing program, um, but it's really hard to get into, but you seem to really like movies. And he was a trustee at AFI. His name was Douglas Gomery, and he was a film historian who worked with Tino Ballio at Wisconsin before he came to Maryland. And he said, you seem to really love film. You know, maybe you want to be a producer. And I was like, what's that? What does that person do? So I applied and, you know, got in. Anyway, Back going yes. forward, <laughs> so I'm now working for this mu- music video director, and one of the first videos we're going to work on is for this band called Twisted Sister, and it's a song called "We're Not Going to Take It." And Dee Snider, the lead singer of Twisted <laughs> Sister, wanted to get Niedermeyer from Animal House, and this is how I kind of really learned what a producer does. It's like no is not an option, and mm-hmm. you know, to borrow from Malcolm X for something that really doesn't matter as much by any means necessary. So. I tracked down Mark Medcalf, who played Niedermeyer in Animal House. He was, like, doing off, 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 sure. off Broadway. <laughs> and somehow somebody put me on the phone at the theater with him. And I talked him into taking something that was, like, the worse than Southwest. Like, it was called People's Express Airlines because we had no money to fly out to to, you know, do his bit in the, so. That's hilarious. But you came through for D. (laughs) I did. And another, um, there was another Stark student who was, who had an internship at a company that was called New World, Mm -hmm. which weirdly at the time owned all of Marvel. 
Yeah. Okay, so that they was were, during that weird Marvel time. Yes, it was definitely well, it was part of like a lot of the weird Marvel yeah. time. But New World owned them. They were mostly known for like super exploitation films like Angel, Hollywood High Student by Day, Hollywood Hooker by Night, God. you know, that and Avenging Angel, which was the sequel. <laughs> And then their kind of classy movie was Girls Just Want to Have Fun mm-hmm. um, with Sarah Jessica Parker. Right. They also made um, Children of the Corn, all those things. So David Simpkins, right. who wrote Adventures in Babysitting, was um, a production executive, which meant he did budgets and boards. He was a below-the-line executive. and But he was writing in his spare hmm. time. And he had written a script that he wanted me to help him get to Twisted Sister, and it was called (laughs) Twisted Summer. And it was kind of based on this thing that MTV was doing at the time when MTV was relevant, unlike now, but we won't go there. (laughs) But when MTV was everything, they ran these contests, and one was with Van Halen, and it was called I Hate My Miserable Life. And if you won, you went on tour with them for the whole entire summer. So he basically had written the Twisted Sister version of that, got introduced to me because I knew Twisted Sister, and we became friends. And I think that's really important for any aspiring producer to understand getting to know your peers. You know, anybody can say they want to work with Eric Roth. Not everybody's going to get access to Eric Roth or Richard Legravenez or Dan Gilroy or people like that. But everybody can meet the talented people that they know Mm -hmm. around them and, and develop a point of view and a passion for their work, which all goes back to being passionate about the underlying cinema, which is where my childhood as a true lover of all of these things, I think has really served me. Yeah. Let me, let me pause here for a sec and go back and and sort of pick up on this point because I think it's an important one and it's important. This is a podcast that primarily writers or would be writers listen to. And that idea of meeting your peers and even, even networking up, as they say, it's not just networking. Right, it's you guys became friends, and that's an important distinction. Like we became seeing friends. each other as people. Yeah, we became friends, and we hung out to the point that, you know, nothing ever came of Twisted Summer. But he said to me, "I'm writing this new script, and it's After Hours for Kids." After Hours, the Scorsese movie where mm-hmm. everything happens in one night, and when he and he gave it to me before he gave it to his agent, and I was a development executive that wasn't sure if I was going to even keep my job. Hmm. But I'd given him some ideas for it, and, you know, we'd stayed in touch and, and, and really talked about the development of it. And when he gave it to me, before he gave it to his agent, who yelled at me and scared the crap out of me what? because I was, you know, 21 years old in my first month of working at a real job in Hollywood, like, because... We got. It was my first like month of working for Deborah and Linda. I'd already been told, we're probably not going to keep you on. You're here on a trial basis. You're not experienced enough. And when I brought them this script that became the first movie that they made that Paramount bought in a preemptive offer, I got to keep my job. <laughs> so um, anyway, David, it, you know, David had had done this great thing, you know, which I, I think is also to encourage writers. Really think about what the marketplace is for um, for your movie. Imagine what the best version of it is, and not the this meets that. Because when in in the '90s, the really popular one was like Die Hard on a Plane, right. or <laughs> Die Hard meets this, or you know, there's a super high concept time period where everything was Die Hard. <laughs> and I think it's um, 
really like David had this thing. He had made a one sheet, um, a poster mm-hmm. for the movie, mm-hmm. and it was a picture of kids like basically hanging off the side of a building, and it said there was a popular. Um, public service announcement at the time, you know, it's for anti-drug one, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? (laughs) And um, it said, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? Think again. (laughs) And so it was this sort of shaggy dog story. And that, um, that was an extraordinary experience. David and I worked very closely on the development of the script. And then when Chris Columbus came on board and it was his directorial debut, he was the hottest screenwriter in mm. Hollywood. He had written Goonies. He had written Gremlins. And, yeah. you know, he I, I learned a lot from Chris. And he was not that much older than us and yeah. a really lovely and generous person. And obviously, I like to joke that I worked on Chris Columbus's first two movies before Home Alone. <laughs> because not that many people saw Adventures in Babysitting, which brings me back to oh, that. Really? I think it was a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah. It became such a notion, hint yeah, and, and a it's afterlife. And and I think that Disney it was ultimately made by Disney. They didn't really know how to reach like tweens and mm-hmm. teens. And I think that the audience caught up with us. Sure. That makes sense. Um, how, let me ask you, how did it become Columbus's directorial debut? Um Somebody suggested him as a director, and the, the, the and the studio was willing to back him. I mean, he'd been getting offered a lot of things, but this he really believed that he could hmm. bring what he had to say. And the babysitting blues idea, I, I believe, came from Chris. <laughs> sure. So <laughs> interesting. Um, so were you then? So how long were you with the Obst Company after that? Um, well, Hillopst Productions, because it was Deborah and Linda's, mm-hmm. I stayed with, I guess, for six years. They broke up at some point, and I stayed a little bit longer with just Linda. But during that time, they were working on The Fisher King, which was okay. a joint project of the two of theirs. Okay. And that was a really extraordinary experience that also created sort of lifetime friendships. And, and I'll go back to your um I'll go back to go forward. When I first started working on the Paramount lot, one of the first people that I met was Scott Frank, who's been my friend, you know, for for over thirty years. Hmm. And um, and I didn't end up working with him until Get Shorty, and we've had an extraordinary collaborative relationship. So yeah, and I think that's again a great lesson. Like become friends if you if there's someone you if, like if, someone if, who's yeah, work you admire it doesn't work if it's not genuine exactly but um you know we instantly hit it off we had a lot in common we we still do yeah. you know the things that we loved books movies you know music and and are still close friends and i would imagine you know like so many of us have with other creative people you have that conversation of oh i wish we could work on something something will come up well Get Shorty was a funny thing because I knew how much he loved Elmore Leonard. Mm-hmm. And he he was really busy because he always is. Like for the first five years, I think we were friends. He was writing two things over and over again, you know. Um, and he he had deals already in place on the lookout and he was late on something else. And when someone was just telling me that a writer said to them to always look in airports for good movie ideas because I guess um, Alan Ball found True Blood in <laughs> sure. a, a, at the airport in a paperback. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Barry Sonnenfeld 
Red Get Shorty in a paperback during a layover at the airport. And he called Danny, who he'd worked on Throw Mama from the Train with when he was the cinematographer, and said, I've read this great book. And he called, um, and Barry called to check in like a week later. And Danny said, I bought it. And Barry said, um, well, have you read it? And he was like, no, I bought it. We're doing it. <laughs> so we met a lot of people. Scott originally said to me he hadn't read the book. He originally said to me, I can't do it. Hmm. You know, I do love Elmore. I can't do it. I'm so busy. I can't do it. And I kept meeting people and really talented, high-profile people. And on a certain level, I knew that he had to do it. And so I just said, look, We've been friends at that point for 15 years or something like that. And I know and I know how much you love Elmore Leonard. I may never have another Elmore Leonard project to work on again and to offer you. And you will hate me later if I don't push you a little bit. So he was taking a red eye to New York. And he and his wife were flying into New York. And my phone rang at like six o'clock in the morning and it was Scott on the phone and uh, can I curse? You may. <laughs> um, and he just said, he didn't say hello, he just said, fuck you. <laughs> and he said, I have to do this. And it kind of That's created great. a lot of um, turmoil in his work life. But <laughs> we began the process of trying to um, crack the code of how to tell an Elmore Leonard story. Yeah, and I think... Get Shorty was sort of the first one of these Elmore Leonard movies that did that, right? Like, I remember reading at the time, everyone's response was, this is so Elmore Leonard. This is the Elmore Leonard that we want. I think the greatest thing that was ever said about Dutch, who was an incredible man, and I really miss him, um, was David Anson said that he um, he did Jane Austen behind bars, that they were, like, very well-observed comedies of manners hmm. by people, by, by lowlifes, you yeah. know, and criminals. And he never talked down to them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think what we really had to do was, with Get Shorty, it was a tough adaptation, was to strip it down to the essence of what Hollywood reinvention is about and what Chili was looking for. And there are some things that we added to the movie, and, and Scott completely deserved to be recognized for his work on the script, but nobody realized how much he had done. Sure. I mean, Bette Midler's character does not exist in the book. She's referenced. Mm -hmm. So that entire plot line doesn't exist. Um, I feel like we jettisoned and, and... Dutch would always laugh about it because we always kept cutting the same things out in the adaptations. We cut out the woman from the studio because she just never fit into it. So we really knew that it was the reason that Chili loved Harry Zim was because he was the only person he saw who actually was making movies. <laughs> and he loved movies. In understanding what makes, what translates from these Elmore novels to the obviously very different animal that is film, like I'm curious about the conversations that had to be had between you and Scott or even later on on Out of Sight. Well, Dutch used to joke that he doesn't didn't know what the themes of his movies were until Scott explained it to him. And um and and Scott and I spent hours just talking about reinvention and talking about we we watched Day of the Locust and we mm-hmm. I mean and Hollywood is a place of reinvention. Mm-hmm. 
and a meritocracy and all of those things. And people are just trying to transform themselves into something else, you know, and it was that idea combined with this notion that the most honest person in all of Hollywood was a criminal that kind of propelled us and that he was tired and wanted to get out. And that Rene Russo's character just was looking for somebody who was solid. You know, mm-hmm. she'd been floating around too, and she felt unseen and unrecognized for the amount of talent that she really had. You know, she was kind of relegated to that B-movie stardom. In these conversations, like, I don't know, it, it feels like you're having this sort of mini writer's room, right? Like you're pulling out these themes in sort of a big picture kind of way. Was it was it hard going? Was this evident from the book? How many times did you have to read the book? We read the book a lot, and we talked about it endlessly. And now that I'm working in television um, a lot more, I understand how much the role of a producer in film is so much like the partner of mm-hmm. uh, like, like playing the function of a writer's room. Cause now that I'll go to our writer's room with like Alan miles on, on badlands yeah. or with, you know, the development that Jen and, and I did even before Amanda came in mm-hmm. on sweet vicious, on sweet vicious. So much of that, you know, on sweet vicious, I had gone to this crazy thing. Um, not crazy. It's the Gracie awards. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, a and what was crazy about it was that every single award for reporting and journalism from women was about sexual assault. So there was the reporting on the Mattress Girl at Columbia. There's, I mean, it, just everything was about that. And so I kept saying to Jen, because she'd written this terrific spec script, and then MTV, and none of those people were there when we were canceled. The only right. good thing that they said to us is we're, there was a flashback in the middle of it, which was Jules and Ophelia in, in college. And they said, let's set the whole thing there. So we had an opportunity to really drill down. And I kept saying, you've got to check out all these videos. Hmm. And that kind of led to the superhero vigilante pain backstory that we really got to explore in the series. And you never know where that kind of inspiration is going to come from. Yeah. I mean, do you see a big part of the job as sort of feeding that fire? A hundred percent. And I also think a big part of it is protecting a writer from hmm. throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I mean, Can you there's, give me an example of that? Well, I mean, you know, when Scott and I have worked together through the years, there's a moment, and Richard Lagravenez and I call it like the great destroyer, where you can't see clearly. Yeah. And you think everything that you've written is terrible. And you need somebody that you are comfortable with in your life to kind of pierce through that's not afraid of you, that has a real conviction. And I think a big part of the job of the producer is to keep the whole equation in your head. Because mm-hmm. when you drill down, like it, when we were working on The Fisher King, Rich was on set, and he went up to Terry, and he said, um, well, actually, I wrote it this way because, and Terry, who's the greatest and hilarious, said, one moment the writer is going to speak, and um, the writer has a thought, and, you know, what he said to all of us was, thank God Richard brought that up, because there's a certain point in the process of filmmaking Mm -hmm. or any kind of production that you stop reading the script. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's the producer's job, along with the writer, 
to make sure that that stuff doesn't get lost, like what your original intention and what you were trying to say doesn't get lost. Interesting. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm curious how that applies to some of these writers, directors who you've worked with multiple times, like Tarantino, like Soderbergh. Um, well, Stephen never wrote any of the movies that that we did, and um, but he brought so much to it. Yeah, I mean, they still feel like his movies, right? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you my favorite out-of-sight story. Um, but even Stephen's capable of it. I mm-hmm. mean, of course. The, Stephen was going to cut the bar scene at one point and we were like, no, you cannot cut the bar scene. And, um, he also, and that was before shooting because we were over budget and we were struggling to Hmm. get down to the budget. Um, he also almost cut the postcoital scene because the studio had been on him to cut it. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from the great Ann V Coates, our editor, our Academy award winning editor who won an Oscar for Lawrence of Arabia Hmm. And it's a funny story that involves all of my friends that are now all friends. So I was with Richard Lagravenez, who's another one of my great friends from, you know, first starting out. And we were going to the premiere of one of his movies. I can't remember what it was. And so I was in his hotel room waiting for him to finish getting ready. And we were about to cut negative. So, um, you know, which that in itself tells you that was a while ago, <laughs> except for when I, I work with Quentin. <laughs> right. Um, so we were, um, which I love, by the way, the uh, still cutting negative and looking at all these things. It's mm-hmm. it's the great joy. Um, I'm sort of old school that way. But well, there's that, that tactile element. I, I right? also think, you know, not many people would not agree with me. Film feels different. It has mm-hmm. a different emotional experience, even in image projection. Mm-hmm even though it cannot be as good. Um, So uh, after that, after the studio had wanted us to cut it, I fought, 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 fought. And then Steven was like, I'm going to cut it. It'll streamline the movie. It it doesn't necessarily matter. And Ann Coates, God bless her, said, I'm not cutting negative until you take one more shot at him. So I called him from Richie's hotel room while he was like, I think, shaving in the other room. (laughs) And then Richard picked up the extension and he said, don't you understand? Because he'd, of course, seen the movie. That's the scene that makes it a Steven Soderbergh film. Anybody can make the streamlined version of the movie. Um, You know, and, and... Every director directs for a different value. And I always had Scott in my ear because, you know, I'd hear, I knew his line readings and because Elmore's dialogue is like um, music and certain things are funny and certain things are not. And there's a scene with Dennis Farina and Jennifer Lopez where he's giving her a birthday present Mm -hmm. and it's a gun. And she says, thanks for the gun, Dad. And there were a couple of takes because Stephen was shooting, I think, at the time, um, even though he's still at a cinematographer at the time. But I think he was shooting it. And I think I was driving him crazy because I kept saying to him, it's only funny if she says, thanks for the gun, Dad. It's not funny <laughs> if she says, thanks for the gun. Yeah. And what I realized was I wasn't really driving him crazy. He was making sure, in his mind, all he heard was that the tone of their performances were right. And when you have these great collaborations, I mean, I just feel so lucky to have made three films with Steven and and with Quentin, um, you know, and and others. Uh, Oliver Stone was an extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. Terry Gilliam was an 
incredible experience. Um, yeah, you know. and it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about a lot of filmmakers who have a very strong voice, right? And that can sometimes get lost in the world of big features. And we're talking, again, about big features, too. I uh, think voice is what I always look for yeah. in a writer, in a writer or a filmmaker. And a lot of times I would, you know, in the case of Richard and Scott, really push for them to become directors. It doesn't always work. You know, I, I there are movies that I've made where, where the writer was making his directorial debut, which, you know, are not one of the better films, because just because somebody can write tone, it doesn't mean that they can communicate sure. tone. And, and you really start to see where... what's literal and what's cinematic translation mm -hmm. in that. But I got really tired of handing over A-plus scripts to C-level directors because I just wanted to protect the work. And so many, you know, of the A-level directors would um, be booked up with their own projects, sure. you know, or being offered a giant blockbuster. And, and you know, the great thing about it's funny, when we were making Out of Sight, I told Stephen about Aaron Brockovich, and he said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard for a movie. <laughs> and at some point, Richard Lagravnes came on to rewrite the script. Julia was interested, and we gave him the script, I think, while we were in post on Out of Sight. And he said yes by the next morning. Wow. And, you know, what he brought was the truth is always more interesting than anything that you can make up. And that's been something that I've really learned. And, and back to the out of sight story, what I learned from Ann Coates is that sometimes even the director can lose their way. Sure. And I was kind of hardwired to only just serve the director's vision, right. blah, 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 blah. You know, whatever the director wants, I'll be the, you know, the T2 or the T3000 <laughs> to make sure that, it happens. Yeah. Well, I guess that was sort of the the question I was I was eventually getting at is like, I picture you as this this you know knight in in armor protecting something, right? And maybe it's the script, and maybe it's the director, and maybe it's the project itself. And I'm wondering about that distinction and and whether it is on a project by project basis or I how do you it figure is it out on a project by project basis? I mean, you know. Uh, Look, I feel comfortable in my long relationship with Quentin Tarantino to be honest with him if I think that he has to go further or something doesn't work. But that um, and and look, I will say a hundred percent that the best writers and directors that I have worked with are the most collaborative. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my other question, right? This is I a collaborative. Don't, I haven't found, you know, I, I the only person and I'll totally talk out of school here, that was a really disappointing experience for me was working with the brilliant Milos Forman, who had his own idea about mm -hmm. what Man on the Moon was supposed to be about. It was not as good as Scott and Larry's screenplay. Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski wrote a br just beautiful yeah. script about the boy who that was an allegory for the boy who cried wolf. Hmm. We had to fight to get milk and cookies when Andy takes everybody for milk and cookies after Carnegie Hall back in because he thought you couldn't reach a higher apex than going to Carnegie Hall for Andy. He didn't understand that 
Andy was a person who then took the audience, continued and broke all the boundaries. Right. And look, he took people on the circle line the next morning after he took them all out for milk and cookies. Really? And so there was a scene that I always regret that we cut, which was um, Bob Zamuda and Andy in the airport and people were coming up to him saying, hey, Kaufman, this is your best one yet. Hmm. And the stories everyone told us, Andy's girlfriend, Lynn Margulies, Bob Zamuda, everyone, Danny, the entire ca- taxi cast, told us these incredible stories about people poking the body at his funeral because nobody believed it. Sure. That's fascinating. So that that kind of, you know... Milos wasn't really open to that, and Jim pushed as much as you can, and now I'm right. fascinated to see the documentary that's going to TIFF of Jim talking about, you know, literally becoming Andy and Tony. So. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Let's let's stay on that movie for a second. Uh, where were Scott and Larry at the time? How did that script, how did they get involved, and how did that Scott script come Larry, across your desk? Um, Scott and Larry and I met um, when we were all at USC together. Oh, really? So we had been friends, and we'd known yeah. each other through the years. And... Uh, at the at the New York Film Festival screening of Pulp Fiction, Danny had seen Milos. They always, you know, because they had their history from Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. And this was really a passion project of Danny's. Oh, really? I guess that Danny wanted to tell the story of Andy. He loved him. He thought he was yeah. brilliant. Danny really came from a history of experimental theater. Hmm. You know, he was a, a child of the 60s. And... He was really passionate about telling Andy's story, and he pitched this idea to Milos while we were all in New York. And I remember we he got in the car that was taking us all to the premiere, and he was like, <laughs> you are going to be so excited because we are doing, you know, Andy Kaufman with Milos Foreman. And then... Um, what was your reaction I, I to loved, that? I mean, I loved Taxi. Sure. And I thought Andy was brilliant, and I, <clears throat> you know, watched him on SNL, and, right. you know, I, th- that was incredible. Yeah. And so then we began the process to look for somebody, and Scott and Larry had, had obviously done People versus Larry Flint, and interestingly, um, at that New York Film Festival, um, Ed Wood was there as well. So, you know, we'd always kind of stayed in touch. And a person who was working with us um, uh, reached out to them and they said yes. And literally, they turned in a Go movie. They came up with the framework. The first draft is the one that went to Jim. The first draft is the one that went to Milos. Now, Milos, they were about to direct a movie, Mm -hmm. so they weren't around all the time, and Milos started to rewrite the script himself, and that's when we got into some problems, and he was really interested in this idea, which he'd explored in Amadeus, and, and... of a person who becomes their alter ego to to fight back death, hmm. but that wasn't the story of Andy yeah. Kaufman. That's you know, he had on top of that. yeah, and he had an alter ego, obviously, right. um, but that wasn't why he had Tony Clifton. Mm-hmm. You know, he he got diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and was dead within six months, mm-hmm. which is why nobody believed him. Right, he was really the first mainstream performance artist. And Jim really understood that, but Jim was the biggest movie star in the world at the time we made the movie, so getting him was the reason the movie was going. And we kind of knew 
that we were headed into trouble because Milos was more interested in recreating performance than yeah. telling, like, and this is what I mean before when I say, like, every director directs for a different value. He directs for a kind of reality. Hmm. There were a lot of time jumps in time in Scott and Larry's script to either make a joke or prove a point or, you know, where you'd have to move forward. And he would, coming from this sort of documentary filmmaking background, like to just hold. And he looked at that as cheating. So, Interesting. Um, you know, Danny and Jim and I spent a long time with Milos in the editing room afterwards to try and reconstitute the movie. Right. And it never really was... I think it's one of Jim's most beautiful performances. Mm -hmm. And I think that when, you know, the notion of the trickster getting tricked, because it was so interesting that he went on this journey to go see every faith healer. And like when he sees this man palm the chicken guts, the psychic surgeon, Jim's so beautiful in that Mm -hmm. scene, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing that, you know, you and Danny and Jim had this vision for this movie, which the guys, Scott and Larry, were able to get across in this script, which is kind of amazing uh, on the first on the first try. Um, well, and Jim didn't get involved until Milish was involved. So I think okay. the thing that was really hard is that nobody was prepared to say to Milosh, we see the movie differently and let's yeah. walk away. Because this is something that's interesting about how movies get put together. You know, they're, they're modular. Mm-hmm. So you go, well, if the two-time Oscar winner is removed from the equation, does the giant movie star go away, right. Which is who's cutting his fee in half to yeah. be in this movie to make a, you know, a $60 million movie, which, you know, at that point was still expensive, um, right. but not that expensive right. compared to giant action movies, but for a movie about, you know, for a biopic. And that, then everybody kind of, plays chicken, you know, and the studio yeah. wasn't willing to do that because they have slots that they have to fill and and they had award movies and things like that. And, you know, Andy was never mainstream. And so, you know, our joke was that he continued to be as, as fringe in death as he was in life <laughs> yeah. because not that many people saw the movie, though um, it makes me really happy that um, we gave Ariama another... Top twenty <laughs> hits. Right. So that made me really. And happy. it is another one of these. I mean, like Adventures in Babysitting, even that has a huge footprint. Yeah. Right? Like people still talk about it. It's still one of those movies. It, it was another ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, ways. in Reality Bites was the same thing. Yeah. Oh, let's get into it. <laughs> Are you a Reality Bites fan? Of course. How old am I? Of course I am. Um, well, Michael Schamberg met Helen Childress, who was twenty. At, and he had produced The Big Chill, and she was at USC. She had written this great script called Blue Bayou, and he was interested in making, like, The Big Chill for people today. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to—he he was pushing it a little bit more artificially, and since I was really close and much closer in age to Helen— um, I we, we just started digging in and really developing it. Mm-hmm. And looking at what the characters wanted and looking at what it is to be the child of divorce and be a latchkey kid and really capture a moment in time of, you know, because even we're both part of Gen X and we really understood that kind of disillusionment yeah. of activists selling out, which yeah. I think is a big and and that sort of 
ironicness that was born in the 90s, you know? But what I want to, what I'm curious about, and again, it's about these conversations you have with the screenwriter, um, if, if you can remember back, the movie is so, such a snapshot of its time that did you guys have the distance to have these kinds of conversations about, like, who are we? What is our generation? Yes, we talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. We definitely talked about it a lot. The great thing that happened when Ben Stiller came on board, and again, this was his directorial debut. Yeah. You know, he was on the Ben Stiller show. The most controversial thing about getting Ben on the movie, not from his point of view, nobody was comfortable, this sounds crazy when I say it now, putting him in the part. That's really funny. Because... We thought we were going to, you know, we came close to making the movie. There, were, we, we decided to just, like, act as if, which is a big thing of mine. Like, I'm mm-hmm. like, let's get the film commission to give us the money to go scouting. Let's know exactly what it takes and have a budget. Let's figure out how much money we need and start. And we're like, and if we have to make the film with, there was some indie darling at the time, <laughs> like, working in, like, super indie films. For $4 million, we're going to do it. We're never giving up, blah, 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 blah. Because, you know, it's important to us. But that's, that's an important point of view too to sort of well I def- that's, that's a big producer industry. thing too yeah. you know um, so <clears throat> I think that um, the original title of the film interestingly was the real world mm-hmm. and the real world came out before we did so that <laughs> we lost that title um, again like pulp fiction like at shorty the studio where we were at had no interest in making the movies they thought like the Cameron Crowe version singles was a better version, mm. you know, which was a little bit glossier and a little, you yeah. know, and Cameron had more cachet. And was that when you go and talk to the studios about this? Is they, that they didn't like even know there comp? was an audience? Well, right. they were being made at the same time. Oh, okay. So um, there really was nothing to compare to to say. No, but people can, had read the script and like, okay. if we were going to do a movie like this, would be much more interested in doing the Cameron Crowe version gotcha. of it because he's done blah blah blah. Right. You know, and look, I worship Cameron Crowe, and right. so, you but know. we know what to expect from him. Yes, you know, say. he's done Fast Times. Right. You know, he's done Say Anything. So we were flying back from this scout having these like, you know, we all love each other. We're making this movie for a dollar ninety eight, paid for by like our coach tickets paid for by um the you know, the film commission. And we get a call. Um and I think it was like I had a Skytel pager and it was like call the office, Great. you know? <laughs> and Winona Ryder had attached herself to the movie, which was interestingly what right at the beginning of my career, everybody was trying to get on Adventures in Babysitting. Like, they really wanted Molly Ringwald. <laughs> and only Disney would make the movie not with Molly Ringwald. Um, and, and they made it because of Chris Columbus, sure. quite honestly. Um, they have to have something they feel comfortable with. Yeah. Like it, it and they always sense. obsess about facial hair. People were freaking what? out about Ethan Hawke's goatee. <laughs> And the wardrobe, and they just wanted Ethan to shave, and we were like, no, and they were like, they don't look glamorous, and um, and they they, they made us look, um, they made us uh, they made us do this photo shoot um, for the one sheet 
with like they what they wanted it to look like was words like credit card debt, student Sorry. loan, all of this stuff raining down, relationships, love, you know, raining down on their heads. And we are we were we were so like punk rock <laughs> that we spray painted movie poster on it. <laughs> and um you know, a few years ago, I had the great experience of we all went to Sundance for Universal's, I think, 125th anniversary, mm-hmm. and they invited us to show Reality Bites at Sundance that for that. And um, Ben and Helen and Michael and I were there. But I think for Ben and Helen and me, because we're all closer in age, it was like watching home movies. Sure. We're like, weren't we cute? Weren't <laughs> we sincere? Weren't we earnest? You know? And um, like, here's things that have changed. It was really hard to get the bands to participate. I was curious about that. Um, and for the, it wasn't hard to get the bands to participate. It was hard to get the labels to hmm. let the bands participate. Like, Atlantic Records blocked the Lemonheads from having a song on the soundtrack. Really? Is it because they just didn't know what this thing was? No, because we weren't on their label. Oh, okay. We we went with RCA. One, because they gave us money, mm-hmm. and two, because they kind of had no artists, so we thought that would be less threatening to, you know. Um, we would always do something, again, in our sort of naivete, like, you know, fuck the man kind of a thing. Um, they wanted, when they'd want to put something on the record, we'd choose the least commercial Dinosaur Junior song right. that we could find, you know, <laughs> to balance it out, and... Um, we like our music supervisor Karen Rackman literally joined Lenny Kravitz on a tour bus and rode from San Francisco to Reading with him to show him the movie on a VHS. And I think like he fell asleep on her shoulder. I still to this day don't know if he's seen the whole entire thing and had said yes to being on the record oh by the God. end. But the great story, of course, is Lisa Loeb. So we were in um, we were in uh, New York showing Ethan the movie. We were just about to go take the film cans to go to Ireland, Ben and I, to show Bono the movie to try and get All I Want Is You. Amazing. And while we and Karen was already there and was meeting us. While the movie was screening, we got a call in the like projection booth. Don't get on the plane tonight. Bono canceled the screening. But he's giving us the song. So we had nothing to do. We stayed in New York that night, and we went to a benefit for Ethan's theater company. And the same theater company where we saw a production that we that um, Steve Zahn was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for Malapart, and Lisa and her band, Nine Stories, were playing. And so when the Lemonheads pulled out, we said, let's move the posies up to first end title, <laughs> and let's make second end title Ethan's friend. So... The record company executive loved it. He produced the redo of it. but And they were like, we want it to be the first single. And we're like, well, the only way it can be the first single is if Ethan directs the video. And it has to be all in one take. <laughs> and like now I think about it, I'm like, That's we were such so brats. And, and then they wanted to use... But there's um, something to that either boldness or naivety or whatever it is that like... <laughs> And the other done. one was, and, and I don't want to make fun of this, like one of our jokes where they were like, we need one more single. And our joke was, why don't you do a reggae version of Baby I Love Your Way? <laughs> and and they were like, that's a great 
idea. And we're like, it is not going to be in the movie. We are (laughs) using Peter Fritz. It's not. And look, it went to number one on the Billboard charts. But Lisa Loeb's stay until about a, a year ago when the way that music was distributed changed was the first unsigned artist to go to number one on the Billboard charts for like 20 years or something. That is nuts. And, yeah. it, and it feels like just in soundtracks alone, that soundtrack changed the way that soundtracks were done. Yeah, I mean... And again, a little ahead of its time. Yeah. I'm, and But look, people were buying soundtracks. Sure. I mean... The but Get the way Shorty it's used sound. In the movie, yes, too. I mean, well, Kathy Nelson, who was head of um, music at Universal, had a really great notion, which is that at that time, and everything's changed because of access to anything on mm-hmm. iTunes. So soundtracks have a different function, but at that time, a soundtrack was what she called a souvenir of the movie. Mm-hmm. It, if you put it on, you had the same good feeling. And, and we put in what we loved. We loved Squeeze, yeah. and we loved Tempted, so we put it in. We loved My Sharona, which, of course, famously, Quentin and Ben both wanted My Sharona. And I don't know this. So My Sharona was the song that Quentin originally wanted for Bring Out the Gimp. Oh, really? And we know the real Sharona. We all knew the real Sharona, who's a real estate agent. And so what we said was, I didn't want to take a position with either of my filmmakers. They both wanted it because that could only get me in trouble. And we said, let's let Doug Figer decide. And Doug Figer, for a song that he wrote about a woman he loved, (laughs) chose um, this lovely moment in Reality Bites. (laughs) And Quentin ended up with the better song for his movie. So sometimes, like, the universe protects you. I think it does in casting. You know, you get the cast you're meant to have and and many of those things. All right, I want to pick that up in a minute. Uh, so you tweeted yesterday uh, this <laughs> the story of uh, getting Michael Keaton involved uh, was it with Out of Sight, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of like he played that played that role a couple times thereafter, right? No. Oh, that's not that one. <laughs> it he played that t- part twice. Yes. But we were the second time. Oh, you were the second time. I didn't realize that. So, so I want to talk about casting sort of broadly, because I feel like that is probably a big part of your job, is getting is. all these people into place. Um, but let us I'm dying to hear the story. So, you know, we were making Jack—Quentin was making Jackie Brown at the same time that we were making Get Shorty. And Quentin was really helpful in telling Travolta what a great script it was when he was nervous about it. You know, we were obviously we were all friends. And I said to him, you know, I kind of want to do something that takes away that catty thing that journalists have where they say, like, oh, they made Pulp Fiction together. And now they're both um, making an Elmore Leonard movie. And I said, Ray Nicolette's in both books. He's in both script. He's a big part in yours. He's got two scenes in ours. How about. We cast the same person, and it's Elmore's world, and we're all just living in it and serving it. And so, he lo- let's let's pause on this for a second because that's really smart. <laughs> like that is that's savvy, but it's also really fun, right? It's what we want from especially these kinds of movies. Um, was the impetus really just like? that yeah. sort of savvy, let's show them this. Well, it was, and I just also thought it would be cool. You know, yeah, they're both Elmore fan. Leonard books. And as a, yeah, it was once again coming from this perspective of a person who just loves movies and loves Elmore. Yeah. You know, and also remember, we'd already, oh no, I'm sorry. We'd already had success with Get Shorty. Okay. 
he was making Elmore Leonard film right after the success right. of Get Shorty, and we were making our second one with mm-hmm. Out of Sight, but we'd all made Pulp together. Gotcha. Um, but yes, Quentin had been tremendously helpful in getting John into Get Shorty as well. So George was cast in Out of Sight before Stephen was on board, and we interviewed directors together. And there were a lot of great people who came in, and when we sat with Stephen, we were like, this is it. Okay, he, he's let me pause everything. you again. Um, you're interviewing directors for Out of Sight, uh, which, again, like, this this is to me one of not just the great Soderbergh movies, but one of the great films. He calls it his least flawed film. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, I'm curious to hear about, like, what are you talking to directors about, and what is George Clooney talking to directors George about? George Clooney obviously smart... is incredibly smart. Yeah. We talked about theme. We talked about character. We talked about, you know, how you maintain the tension with two characters that are apart for a long mm. time and what what was the visual reference and, you know... Um, one of Steven's big visual references for the film, I feel like all I do is talk about Hal Ashby, was the last detail and also um, the French connection. And I think he started playing with different color palettes to let people know what different, you know, which mm-hmm. he perfected in traffic and then abandoned and everybody else copied. Um, <laughs> uh, we used ectochrome in prison and oh, a, a lot of things like that, um, you know, and... and I think, again, what Elmore was, and he would say it was Scott, was interested in these ideas of reinvention. And if we take a left or a right, like his Mm. researcher would always talk about um, if somebody was a landscaper, Elmore wanted research done so that he knew every flower or every variety of grass or anything that you could encounter on the character's walk home in either direction. And I think so much of life is about whether you t- you make a left turn or a right turn. And I think that we were exploring characters who at another time mm-hmm. might have had a different outcome. Sure. And, you know, Stevens, our age, and he had the same references we had, and he understood how we were completely stealing from shampoo at the beginning <laughs> of the movie and awesome. in a great way, um, which was, again, not in the book. In the book, you never meet um, the Ripper. Hmm. Um, in the book, uh, yeah, you, you never meet him in, in when for the robbery. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other characters that Scott completely invented. You just allude to him. But who are so part of the world that, like, clearly he was living, but, again, he's living in this but Elmore But for Elmore, world. so Karen Sisko was a bailiff, I guess, mm-hmm. in, she actually was Jackie Brown's bailiff. Oh, funny. She wasn't in Quentin's script for, um, for Rum Punch. And Ray Nicolette, Quentin and I joked that, like, I came up with this whole scenario of what happened in between Jackie Brown and, <laughs> and Out of Sight, which was that after everything went horribly awry, he ended up going to the FBI because he got busted out of the ATF uh-huh. for fucking up this whole thing on ja- during Jackie Brown. And when it came time to do it, it was really difficult. And um, Quentin... I remember sitting in a trailer somewhere and being on the phone with him, and he just said, I'm going to help you make this happen. I'm going to tell the wine scenes. I'm going to tell Universal, who may have had some rights to the characters. Mm. 
or I'm going to tell, no, I'm going to tell the Weinsteins um, to make this happen. I'm going to get the wardrobe so he has the same sunglasses, and I'll help you convince Michael to do it. And Michael's really and, and proud of it. And why was he the guy? Because he, uh, why was Michael the guy? Yeah, I mean, did you Michael guys... had already been cast as Ray Nicolette and Quentin's Oh, he had already been cast. Yeah, he's oh, only okay. two, you know, he's only two scenes right. in ours. Okay. You know, and... Uh, so it took a lot of fancy footwork. Yeah, and, but it was all for the right reasons, and I love that they're playing on a double bill and Michael's yeah. playing the same character <laughs> and it just it's 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 a rich experience yeah it really it, is it, it's like I said it's Elmore Leonard's world and we're all living in it absolutely you know so um, I think that made Dutch really happy were you involved with and the, I love Jackie Brown it's one of my favorite of Quentin's movie. films absolutely were you involved with the Karen Sisko TV show I was indeed it's, yeah it was one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my career it should have it should still be on the air Scott <laughs> had the greatest idea um, we had a bad showrunner. Hmm. Um, we had a bad showrunner. Television, again, this is ahead of its time. What Absolutely. we were making was a cable show, and we were making it for ABC. They were trying to turn it into Alias because that was the only hit that they had. And Scott kept saying, this is a father-daughter Rockford Files. Hmm. And it, um, they just never understood what we were up to. Sure. They wouldn't listen to Scott. They wouldn't listen to me. You know, Scott, who'd been nominated for an Oscar and won the Writers Guild Award for it, they wouldn't listen to Dutch. Dutch did, like, Dutch broke a ton of stories. He had really great ones, one that was, like, a whole entire chase through the Keys with Karen following somebody who's stolen, a um, like, a bottle episode, but it was, like, a road episode, yeah, okay. bottle episode. And it breaks my heart. I, I think that um, I loved Carla Gugino in it, you know? Yeah, and I, absolutely. And, and a, and a couple of years later, it would have found yep. the right home. It would have been made the way it ought to have been made. I mean, we saw it with Justified, even. That, yeah. Uh, well, I feel like I, I feel like that was definitely um, all of our gifts. And you know, John yeah. Landgraf, who runs FX, was our partner in Jersey Television. Mm-hmm. So he had worked with us on out of, on yeah. Karen Cisco, and that was one of those things where it's not that often, but it was my idea. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's make a TV show of this. She's such a great character. Let's follow her every week. And <clears throat> and it happened. And, you know, we asked, unlike Get Shorty, we asked Steven Soderbergh if he wanted to direct it, which he declined, or be involved, right. which he declined at the time. Um, and Scott helped work with Jason Smilovic, who wrote the script and created the show. And he was an EP on it. And Dutch was involved. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it was bad luck. Yeah, and, and the bad ahead combination. Of our time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious about that. You know, other times this has happened when you've said, I have this idea, or I have this seed of a thing that I know could be a thing. Um, well, when we started Into the Badlands, Joel Stillerman said to me at, um, at the premiere of Django, he said, I've always wanted to do a martial arts show that could be a companion piece to The Walking Dead. Hmm. And that was the origin of it. And apparently he'd said that to a lot of people, but we're old friends and we were close. And I thought, I can reverse engineer this. And Daniel Wu and I were friends and um, we started talking. And, and I knew that the key to it, it's funny because I was still working with Quentin and we talked about it at the time. And he was talking about how the only time he'd ever seen anything that approached Hong Kong um, choreography, fight choreography, was on a show called Martial Law, which mm. was very short-lived. And uh, weirdly, 
Al, Al Goff and Miles Miller had been, their first writing job was on martial oh, really? law. And it functioned the way our show functions with two completely different units, a fight unit and a drama unit. And so there, Daniel and I had met each other before I went to um, Hong Kong to shoot Contagion, and he was still living in Hong Kong full-time at the time. And we became good friends because we were there for six weeks. My husband was there. We got to know his incredible wife, Lisa. My kids were with us, and, you know, we had a really great time. So he was the first person I went to, not necessarily to... Um, to be in it, but at the end we were like, okay, we've seen all these people and we can all only picture you in it. You have to do it. And, um, it was that it was, um, and, and then I started meeting writers and, and I had met Alan Miles who also went to the Stark program at SC at some big USC Mm -hmm. event. And though they went after I did and, you know, they had done all the Shanghai Nights and Shanghai Noon movies and they loved martial arts movies and they were thinking about doing something in that area and the combination of a couple of elements um, really led to this time in the future that mirrored almost like um, we knew that it was going to ultimately be a journey of enlightenment story Mm -hmm. and that's why it was very inspired by Journey to the West and we felt that the future was the time to, to set it and to set it hundreds of years in the future where we're not thinking about what happened that mm-hmm. got us to sure. this sort of post-apocalyptic, if it's not apocalyptic. Like, we kept thinking of it, unfortunately, as a climate change event <laughs> that because I had been in New Orleans and looked at these weird, like, urban jungles that yeah. were spinning, springing up after the hurricane and where people had just left stuff and there were whole like ecosystems in these with wildlife and you know mountain cats and all kinds of things and we sort of thought about what if it was just nature encroaching on anything that happened as people began again interesting and and this person who's lived an extremely violent life um you know trying to leave that behind and go on a journey towards enlightenment hmm Did you guys get, I mean, I guess you didn't really have to shop it to many places, right? No, we, they, they wrote, they pitched it and, um, AMC bought it in the room and then the deal became very complicated. So then we just worked on it as a spec script and then we were able to get picked up to six episodes the first season Mm because they had already written it. Did you get? Um, and I may have asked this of uh, Alan Miles when I talked to them, but I can't remember. Was there pushback about answers? How did we get this way? There were. Um, what was more important to us than how? You know, and obviously there's some chilling things mm-hmm. in season one that look a lot like what's going on right now that we talked about. But what we were interested in was really going from metaphorically the dark ages mm-hmm. to the age of enlightenment. Yeah, so I guess if you if you can keep pushing that, you can you know, you have that focus, right? You have that target. And yeah, so and, and so the walls, ironically, that everybody probably thinks that <laughs> were some sort of Trumpian thing, the walls were always in the pitch because they were more like feudalism. Mm-hmm. People were living off the land and their idea was to kind of combine the five families with like a kind of feudalism or things that you'd see in Japanese samurai movies. 
Interesting. Um, so that that's so kind that's of neat. it became a mashup of all of those yeah, things. That's cool. Um, and, and, and as you said, so you're shooting third season now. Yeah. Uh, do you know when it premieres? I Next should year know sometime. the answer. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we can say that. I feel like Guys around the it. same time that we came out last year. I think okay. it was February last year. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, Pulp Fiction and the Tarantino films. Um, how, how did this? Uh, where did it come from? I don't know the story uh, of how Pulp Fiction landed at Jersey. Well, I met Quentin Tarantino. I used to do this thing that he, he always loves to tell the story of, but there used to be a thing in Variety which was called Future Films in Production. Mm-hmm. It was a column that was in Variety. And so my thing is like when I was a development girl um, was I would pour over them. And if I saw actors that were really established with either a writer or a director I'd never heard of, I would get the script. <laughs> and Pulp Fiction was one of those. Um, it, you know, not Pulp Fiction, I'm sorry, Reservoir Dogs Reservoir was Dogs. one of those. And um, I, I'd been bugging Lee Stolman, who was Quentin's younger agent, and I think he was represented by somebody who was Matt Dillon's agent at the time with Mike Simpson. But um, it was it came through the indie film division to mm-hmm. William Morris for Matt Dillon originally, who ended up not being in it. And they signed him right away because they read how great it was. And I was like bugging them, bugging them. They were like, oh, we can't do this. We, you know, he's, he's too busy to meet anybody. And I have a friend, Chris Brancato, who's a big showrunner. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were all, once again, starting out with your peers, all of that. And he was Lawrence Bender's roommate. And he also had told me about the script and said, oh, my friend Lawrence is making this really good movie with this guy who's really talented. And Chris and I were at the premiere, what perfect timing, because it's just being re-released in 3D, (laughs) of Terminator 2. (laughs) Sure. And I was with Chris and my friend Callie Corey, Mm -hmm. who had just, they had just finished shooting Thelma and Louise. And she was with Harvey Keitel. And Quentin walked over. What a crazy time. (laughs) Yeah, and and, because they had just finished working on Thelma and Louise. And Quentin walked over to where we were to say hi to Harvey. And Chris Brancato turned and said, "Stacy, I'm about to make your night meet Quentin Tarantino." <laughs> and we became fr- we became great friends right That's away, really um, and we became really close friends. And f- you know, first we offered him other things, hmm. um, which you know at that time he was very conscious of the fact that he didn't want to do and knew that he wasn't going to do unless his directorial debut didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious about what kind of having you know. Knowing him a little bit, right, and then finding material that you think he might respond to. I Do you feel like the it was an things? old Don Winslow novel. I, you Interesting. Know. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember exactly. Yeah, it was definitely a novel. Yep, absolutely. And then we said, how about we make uh we make a deal to do whatever for you to write and direct whatever you want to do next for your second film. And so before he had shot a frame of film, we had a deal for um, Pulp Fiction, which was the pitch was three films that are one film, (laughs) three stories about one story. How do, how do you, and how does Jersey film say, take a flyer on this? That's what Jersey was for. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Danny really believed in. And 
unfortunately, the industry, you know, that's what Brad Pitt's company is now. That's Mm -hmm. a lot of people will say, you know, we were inspired by Jersey. Soderbergh and Clooney said it when they started their company. The problem was, unlike Tribeca or Imagine, Mm -hmm. we were operating on two tracks. We, Danny was making his films as an actor and a director, for the most part, outside of the company. And we were doing these other things that were kind of experimental that were would break through later. Right. But out of our discretionary fund, which we paid for the Pulp Fiction script with, we also developed Garden State. We also developed How High. We also developed Camp. We yeah. also paid Camp for... Camp is great. Camp is great. <laughs> we also paid for um, the Ghost World script. Oh, interesting. So... There were amazing things that we did because, oh, and Aaron Brockovich was developed out of our discretionary fund, as was the World Trade Center film. Huh. So things that we couldn't get people to say yes to, we were able to. And, you know, and, and there were times that we gave newer writers who were not as expensive a shot mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it just was... Um, it was a laboratory, as Danny would say. Interesting. Um, and Danny literally had to practically get on Mike Metavoy's desk to say, we want to make this deal with Quentin. Which, again, and by not the way, surprising. Then they but... would, and, and I only will talk about this because he brags about passing on it still to this day. <laughs> you know, they passed on it. And the movie was, it, Danny used to call it the Fellini. It's only eight and a half million dollars. You know? <laughs> so um, when Quentin finished the script, he turned it in and it said last draft and it was 165 <laughs> pages and it was phenomenal. And it's funny, I recently met a writer who I guess was an assistant working for us at the time. Oh, wow. And he said, Michael gave him the script to read to ask him to do notes on it. And it wasn't a writer. It was an executive. Mm-hmm. And he said he spent so much time thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. He read it, read it, spent 30 hours, and he came back and he said, there's nothing wrong with this. Wow. I can't give you any notes on this script. And that's how we all felt about it. That's crazy. Like, what was it about this script? Is it is it the movie we see? Absolutely. How different is there's it? only one scene that's not in the movie. That's crazy. Yeah, Who is this guy? <laughs> he's, you know, he's he's extraordinary. Like, in your experience now working on a few films with him, is this the way it goes? Do these things come fully formed from his brain? He lets them kind of um, percolate for a while, mm-hmm. you know, and he has, like, a real process of um, he writes earlier in the day, He'll then, like, float in the pool, and when he reads it again the next day, he'll decide whether or not it still sure. is good for him. And, and and it's like, what's battling most to come out? What stories to tell? Yeah, I guess I've now that I think of it, I've heard of him talk about it that way. It's like, he's only putting the stuff he wants to see in the script, which I think is a great he's, lesson. He really, he does, you know, he'll write by hand, he'll r- copy it over, mm-hmm. And he'll read it to a lot of us. You know, there are different parts of... Like, I remember while he was writing Pulp, he was living in Amsterdam, and he would call me from a payphone outside of his apartment and, you know, read me whole sections of the movie. And um, on Django, he would read me different parts. And, you know, so through, look, he. I remember the first time he read me the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, which I didn't produce, um, when I was at a restaurant with him in New York. Hmm. 
So it's just part of his process. There's a group of us that he knows well enough that he gauges. Like the other thing that always cracks me up is that if I'm not working on a movie or even if I am sometimes I'll be watching a first cut and I'll feel him like he'll sit in front of me and it's like staring at me to see what the look on my uh-huh. face is at a scene that he wants to, you know, but he's, um, That's really he's fun. completely, um, singular and I, I'm so happy to have been an early supporter of his yeah. to, and, and a person who recognized it right away and, and was, you know, there to be, uh, both uh, protective lioness and mama bear and sure. all, you know, and cheerleader. Well, and that that is, again, getting back to this what a producer quality, does. Yeah. right, is like you're given a script like this, uh, you're handed a script like this, which is singular, right? It's unique. How do you get that on the screen? Like, what are the next steps for something like Pulp? Well, Quentin made a, we did a budget, and actually, like, one of um, one of Danny's and our agents at the time had a really great idea for the structure of the deal, which was it was to keep it from going into kind of development hell mm-hmm. and to keep them from attaching a lot of money against it. It was called 30-Day Reversion with a Lean. And it meant that when we de- delivered a script he was ready to shoot with a cast list and a budget, they had 30 days to proceed forward or or it reverted back to us with a lien just on the actual cost spent on the script. Mm-hmm. And that happened. They gave it back That's to smart. us. And we, you know, um, I, I kind of think that, like, Mike Simpson, who's the greatest person and a brilliant agent, convinced the Weinsteins that um, Miramax was going to lose it and they basically basically were in a bidding war with themselves, you know, and um, (laughs) otherwise we were going to have to piece it together through foreign financing and because every major studio passed on it. Yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, the people who were tortured by passing on it to to this day were Bob Shea and Mike DeLuca. And I swear to God, it's like how many years later, every time I see Bob Shea, he's like, God, I wish I didn't pass on Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so. But that's a fascinating thing. And look, you're, you've continued your life as a producer. And I'm sure every once in a while you get another one of these scripts. Does that give you any cachet? Can you say, go to all. someone? Really? No, nothing. Nothing <laughs> helps you, you know... It, Every I've, time it's I've like I've never new. made movies that are in the same genre. Mm-hmm. I've never, I'm not a specialist. Mm-hmm. I think there's a through line that runs through all the things that I'm attracted to, and they're somehow about the exploration of the, of, of the human condition in mm-hmm. a really pretentious way of saying it. But, you know, I think about it didn't make it any easier for us to get Gattaca made. It didn't mm-hmm. make it any easier. It, it just was never... Nothing's ever been easy except for, you know, easy when you're making Contagion and Steven brings you into the process of developing that and he can get any movie star he wants. Easy getting, you know, Django made with Mm. Quentin and every studio wants to be the Weinstein's partner. (laughs) Yeah, those are easy. Yeah. But I can't think of, I mean, look, four years ago or five years ago, I raised $3.1 million on Kickstarter for Zach Braff to make his follow-up to Garden State because we couldn't even get $5 million to make that movie. That's crazy. 
people didn't like it. I mean, you know, critics were really mean to that movie, and that movie will be were reevaluated. They? they hated that we went to Kickstarter and got people to pay for the right. movie. Sure. So, like, I, I, I will always feel a little bit guilty of pushing him to do that. Hmm. On the other hand, you know, because... Journalists attacked him and right. blo- and and just attacked him, and then were gleeful and not liking the movie. But you know, Quentin said something to me the night of the premiere of Fisher King, which he came to with me. <laughs> he said the review of your film is not written the weekend it comes out; it's written ten, twenty, right. thirty, forty years from now. And you have to understand that, and you have to and and because I've done a lot of things, sometimes there's a great Truffaut book that Quentin gave me a long time ago called The Films in My Life, Mm -hmm. which is his writing um, when he was a journalist for Cahiers de Cinema. And he talks about when the fascination of the public, of the audience, and the fascination of the filmmaker collide, that's when we have these big, you know, zeitgeist moments. Mm. And I've been fortunate enough to have many of those happen, and I've also been ahead of my time. And so it's, I don't regret any of the choices I've made, but it's never been easy and i've yeah. i've I, you know i mean my ex partner michael used to say if you aim high and miss you can still hold your head up you know and i think that while not all of my films have been great and not all of them and certainly not all of them have been hits i feel like you see the through line of aiming for something absolutely and and to your credit i mean you have a pretty high percentage of both hits and quality well, you know you. and sometimes those overlap which is really has to be satisfying um, before we wrap up i just want to hear about like and maybe that is it but what's the creatively satisfying part of your job or of your day well you know when when you find a story that you really think needs to be told or you meet a writer that you think is so incredibly talented that you want to help their voice be heard. And the same is true of a filmmaker. You know, or even when you see something that's unlike something that you haven't seen before. You know, it's it's as exciting to find a new filmmaker as it is to get to work with a really established filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And, you know... It's just not that often, you know, so it definitely is needle in a haystack. But and even if it's not something that you've made, I mean, seeing Moonlight was a transformative experience Mm -hmm. for me. I mean, Barry Jenkins is astonishing, you know, and that's amazing. Or the joy of going to Logan Lucky and seeing Stephen try and reinvent the system, whether it works or doesn't work, the idea that you can tackle something to change the way that we're going to view things. I mean, I think that's really exciting. Everything's changing. People complain a lot about how difficult it is. I, I think it's always been difficult. Yeah, you know, it, we were not not a mature business when I started in the late 80s, early 90s. And you could have things like a discretionary fund and develop right. stuff, you know? And it is harder for writers because, you know, there are a lot more people that are are struggling to, to work and to do things, but there are a lot more hours of content that are out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, think, I think it's really important to have a point of view for any of, like, 
the writers that listen to you, to your podcast. I think that you can you can do almost anything now. You can it you know it's it's not like you can crowdfund. You can you can shoot on your iPhone. You yeah. can edit on your Mac. You can score on your Mac. You can do all those things. Just because you can make a film doesn't mean that you have something to say. And that's, you know, one of the things that really struck me that I watched lately was Five Came Back, mm-hmm. the documentary about the, the the filmmakers that went to World War II. And I, I think that that's been lost. You know, everything's like, what's the IP we can adapt? Sure. And what's the this? It's like, no, how can you transform that to affect people? And I think that's why people love Wonder Woman the way they do, mm-hmm. like I did. Yeah. Um, even though I love James Cameron. <laughs> I loved Wonder Woman. Let's be serious. We all love Wonder Woman. Yeah, we all love Wonder Woman. I mean, look, I, I everyone teases me because I have this sort of like work obsession with James Cameron because I think he's such a brilliant structuralist. There's not like an ounce of fat and, and you know, people could argue about some of the dialogue or whatever, but he sets things up that seem like they're completely random. And it's so great when, you know, like Billy Wilder would say, as an audience member, you get to put two and two together. Absolutely. It's it's amazingly pleasurable. That being said, I think you kind of <laughs> missed the boat on this one. <laughs> Well, we can't leave it at that. So I will ask you, uh, what have you seen lately, uh, whether it's books, TV, movies that you've really enjoyed that has inspired you that's, you know, you can't wait to tell people about? Um, well, I love The Handmaid's Tale. Right. I really love Issa Rae's show, Insecure. Terrific. Obviously, I loved Wonder Woman. Um, I I actually can't wait to read the new Jennifer Egan book mm-hmm. because I loved A Visit to the Goon Squad so much. Um Trying to think, of, I I just recently watched all all of um, Jeremy Saulnier's films, and I really like his stuff. I don't even know who that is. Oh, he did this really great these two great exploitation films called Blue Ruin and The Green oh, Room. Oh yeah, yeah, Green Room, I love. It's so good. That's Jeremy. I don't Saulnier. know his name. Yeah, and he's um, terrific. I'm a big fan of Jeff Nichols. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know obviously like every person on the planet, I I worship Barry Jenkins. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, TV that I've really loved. Um, you know, I, I I am the only person in America who has not watched Game of Thrones. No, you're not. Okay, I'm sitting in the room with three people who have we're not watched games. Of, yes, here it's like it's like there was a, an apocalypse exactly. of television, and we we were in a bubble that didn't get the HBO feed yep. here for however. We can't years. admit it out in the comic book store, but yeah. no, we, don't, we don't watch Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I do watch The Walking Dead every week, and I can't wait for it to come back. I, I'm a big Walking Dead fan, and I'm even though I think that they're really mean to us when the Talking Dead's later. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I think it's been a great year for television. Yeah, for know? TV and movies, honestly. I, I agree. Yeah, I actually agree. What else have you loved this summer? I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's been a great year for movies, and I'm usually pretty down on movies um, because it never feels to me like there's a singular vision behind it, right? It's so rare to get mm-hmm. that. Um, but this year we got The Big Sick. Yeah, which was great. Uh, Baby Driver. We got Get Out, like, these are three yeah. great movies. You're right. By loved them all. And independent and like yeah, loved them really all. well made, great actors, great scripts. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think that Get Out is really well directed. Absolutely. I mean, it's really well directed. And I personally would love to see Edgar do a musical. 
an actual right? musical, He's not so only close. like a kind of musical. <laughs> He's so close. And and look, as much as I loved Moonlight and and voted for it, um, I I loved La La Land also. Mm-hmm. It was it yeah. Was there really were a lot fun. of good movies last, last year. Was a good movie too. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the and it's the ones that are chances, right? They're the ones that don't seem like the most obvious choices to be great movies. Yep. Um, anyway, you keep making them. Thank so you. thank you. Uh, thanks, thanks for being for here, Stacey. This was fun. Now leaving Nerdist.com.